Welcome to Catholic Confessions. Hi, I'm Edith. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. We'll be examining an event that is fundamental to the birth of Christianity, namely the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so as Christians, most of us probably we do not really question the resurrection and we just uh, accept that it was something that happened. Okay, because like my parish priest used to always say in his Easter homilies that without the resurrection, our religion wouldn't have any meaning. Okay, there would be no Christianity. But we must also realize that there are a lot of skeptics out there who challenge the very idea that the resurrection even took place at all. And in doing so, they actually also challenge the roots of Christianity itself. For example, some might say that, okay, maybe Jesus didn't really die on the cross, or that even if there was an empty tomb, okay, there being no other reasonable explanation, so people invented the concept of the resurrection as an explanation. Or maybe that the resurrection is uh, something that it happened um, in the hearts and minds of the believers. It was something interior, it was something subjective. And Jesus did not actually rise bodily from the dead. So right now, today, to help us understand and to see that the resurrection is actually the most convincing explanation for the rise of Christianity, uh, we're very happy to have with us the Vice President of the Catholic Theology Network, Chandra, okay, to help us to shed some light on this issue. Hello, folks. Um, I'm here uh, trying to talk about how the resurrection is uh, one of the most interesting, convincing theses to explain the rise of Christianity. So before that, I would like to start by explaining first what the historical meaning of the resurrection at the time of Jesus, the first century Palestinian Judaism. So we know at that time that the Jewish culture was surrounded by the pagan Roman Greek. And many a times this has been a point of contention. Why? Because people say that uh, the resurrection was invented, absorbed from the surrounding Jewish pagan beliefs. There are many such um, anti-apologetic uh, polemics surrounding this. But academia actually have been quite clear on this matter. So let me explain first uh, what happened in a Greek-Roman afterlife or underworld. So the Greco-Roman underworld, where do souls go? Basically, people who have died, they do not resurrect, that's for sure. If you ask a first century Greek whether somebody who dies can resurrect, they will say, no way. This is exactly the same as people who say, uh, during Paul's time that it was foolish for the resurrection to have happened. So in the Greco-Roman understanding, there are souls or shades, ghosts or phantoms. They're subhuman with immaterial existence, characterized by sadness, loss and misery. And they think of life after death as something not positive, something not desired. They do not see, however, that the body itself is a good thing to have. In other words, this concept is quite different from what we find in Orthodox Christianity several centuries later, including even Jewish culture, Jewish religion at the time. In the ancient Jewish belief, life after death is a sleeping. Basically, you sleep in Sheol, in the Hades, and the dead will raised only at the end times. So this has some similarity in that the resurrection is seen as a joyful, positive event, so very distinct from the Greco-Roman concept. 
also it does not and this is very important it does not happen to an individual person the resurrection is a collective apocalyptic event that happened at the end time to signal the coming of God's kingdom and that's precisely the kind of mentality that we find in first century Judaism during Jesus time and when the resurrection of Jesus was being proclaimed so this is the backdrop of the meaning of the resurrection until now so the Christian concept of resurrection could not have been derived from pagan beliefs yeah so as I mentioned earlier uh, basically the pagan belief the Greco-Roman underworld does not admit of a bodily resurrection as I said it's an immaterial existence and it's characterized by a sense of sadness a very gloomy atmosphere even when we see someone survives in the afterlife for example Hercules uh, becoming a god and join the stars his body is actually at the same time when that happens being burnt in a funeral pyre so it implies that the body is something that is not really desired the body is burnt for good and for good reasons because now he no longer needs the body the body was seen as something negative it's quite different from the Jewish and Christian understanding of the body. If we look at the Jewish understanding of resurrection in Jesus' time, I mean, we, we do know that in the Gospels, resurrection is uh, a belief that was expressed by the Pharisees. But how different is this belief from the Christian concept of resurrection? Okay, that's a very good question. So basically, there are several points. The first is, as I said earlier, the resurrection in Jewish concept is something collective. First, it doesn't happen to an individual person. It happens to the whole nation of Israel. It also happens only at the last day. And this is in fact something Martha said when Jesus was about to raise Lazarus. That's the second point. The third point is that the resurrection is seen merely as a restoration to a previous life. It's a restoration of life. Notice the difference between this and the Christian understanding. First, it happened already to an individual called Jesus. Second, it's also not something that happened at the end times or the last day, although in fact we believe that the messianic age is now. Third, the resurrection is not merely some restoration to an earlier life, but a movement beyond transcending our current life, such that the disciples could not recognize the bodily form of Jesus. So within the belief of Jewish concept of the resurrection, we see some mutation or some changes, some different points that Christianity have further elaborated on and moved beyond their existing meaning. Okay, so this actually gives us the backdrop to help, help us to understand why the resurrection is really the only plausible explanation for the birth of Christianity at that time. Yes, so in this sense, I would move from this historical investigation or discussion and go directly towards the four historical problematics where we can see why these are historical problematics, why we cannot ignore them, why it would look very strange if we take it for granted that the resurrection didn't happen, and what else can we say about the rise of Christianity were the resurrection not an objective event? So the first is Sunday worship. That's our observation or historical problematic number one. So we know that the first century Judaism uh, worship on the Sabbath in synagogues 
and to them it's not something ordinary to just change like we now we go to this sunday service saturday service to them the sabbath service is a very fixed a very fixed practice that is very difficult to change it's rooted very firmly rooted in judaism as a major cultural religious and political landmark so richard balkam already identified that sunday worship in early Christian meeting happened on the first day of the week at least since the mid-first century in Palestine. By the second century, it's universal practice with no hint of controversy at all. So we cannot really simply explain this as an attempt by the Christians, by the early Christians, to distinguish themselves from the Jewish neighbors. It means there must be something that pushed them to move worship from Sabbath, Saturday, to Sunday. So this is the first point, the first historical problematic. The second historical problematic is the idea of the kingdom of God. So in the Jewish understanding of the kingdom of God, remember that the kingdom will be ruled by the Lord, by the Messiah, and it has a real visible earthly element in the form of a political kingdom where the kingdom of David will be restored in a literal sense. And yet what we found is that the early Christians they did not have the kingdom restored. The empire of Rome was ever stronger, was at the strongest point. And Jerusalem, in fact, got destroyed. So basically, none of the things that Second Temple Judaism had hoped for when they used the language of God becoming king had actually occurred. So meaning, their understanding of the kingdom of God is quite distinct. Or rather, they lived as if the kingdom of God has come and reordered their life according to it, which is something very strange, if there is nothing else to explain this phenomenon. So this also ties up with the other idea of Jesus as the Messiah, right? If you if you consider that they were looking forward to a political sort of Messiah who will liberate, liberate them from Roman rule, it didn't actually happen. So Jesus didn't fit their criteria as a Messiah in, in that sense, but yet, for Christianity, for right from the outset, Jesus was the one. Exactly. And this uh, puts us forward to observation number three, the proclamation of Jesus, a crucified rabbi, a criminal, as Messiah, which is ridiculous thing to say in first century Judaism. This is why uh, St. Paul says it's foolish to proclaim a crucified Messiah. Basically, we had several Messiahs at the time. And for these other Messiahs, for example, Simon Bar-Giora, during the first revolt, they were killed and the movement died down. Nobody would, in their healthy mind, would think that Simon was actually the Messiah. We also had another uh, revolution, Simon ben Koshiba, Barkoba, who was also killed. And yet, nobody would also say that he was actually the Messiah. So there is some gap here from saying that a crucified rabbi, which in Jewish understanding means that he is cursed by God, is now a Messiah. It is something Jewish person would definitely not say about a crucified rabbi unless some other thing happened. So this brings us to observation number four. Jesus not only as the Messiah, but Jesus sharing the divine identity of Yahweh himself. I would like to cite one study by Larry Hurtado. He's a pioneer of studies on early devotions to Jesus. 
And he noticed that there are already noteworthy devotion to Jesus emerging phenomenally early in circles of his followers, about 30 to 50 century, common era. And this cannot be explained as a secondary stage of religious development. It means it's a spontaneous development in which Jesus, a crucified rabbi, is worshipped along with the Father. It's an unparalleled intensity and diversity of expression. There's no true analogy in the religious environment of the time. Why do I say this? Because there were other Jewish communities. They also had their own Messiah, so to speak. For example, the Qumran community, they have, or they foresaw Melchizedek as their Messiah. But even then, Melchizedek was not actually part of the worship to the Father, to God. Even in um, Apocrypha, uh, in an apocrypha such as the first book of Enoch, in the chosen one in the similitudes, which acted something like a messiah, did not actually receive any worship. So we have a very different treatment of a messiah here by Christians. First, singing of hymns about Jesus, invocation, confession of Jesus, prayer offered through Jesus and or in his name, and even to him, ritual of the use of Jesus' name in entrance rite of the community, and sacred common meal in which Jesus is the presiding presence, and prophecy inspired by Jesus and uttered in his name. All these form this unparalleled intensity of the religious devotion to Jesus, something that didn't happen at the time, such that by the 2nd, 3rd century, we have the Nomina Sacra, so the name of Jesus treated in the manuscripts as if they were divine names by abbreviations, by a practice of abbreviating the name similar to the word Yahweh was being treated in the Old Testament manuscript. Okay, so basically this means that we have a perplexing issue. Why? If they merely had invented a religion to cater to the Jewish poor people at the time, why would they first make Jesus a messiah? And second, on top of that, pile onto Jesus divine status plus receiving worship. This is something very, very extraordinary. As I mentioned earlier, we have no other such uh, observation in other Jewish sects at the time. So if you sit and think about it, if somebody try to proclaim to you that a crucified rabbi is proclaimed as Messiah, and then on top of that, instead of just saying, yeah, he's a Messiah, we just need forgiveness. On top of that, we say that, oh no, that's not enough. He's actually the Lord and God of the whole universe. It makes things totally different. It's something nobody would even think of inventing because it's such a ridiculous idea, which is what makes it even more to be pondered twice, three times. So I have come to these four observations, basically. The first is the movement of Saturday worship or Sabbath worship to Sunday. And then how Christians treated their lives or their worldview as if God's kingdom had come. And then we also looked at how a crucified rabbi was basically proclaimed as a Messiah, which is very strange. And then we also saw how not only that, but this crucified same rabbi is actually the divine Lord who proclaimed in the wilderness that I am who am. This whole package of strange or very perplexing teachings were not something you would invent. If you would like to invent a religion, you would make it simpler. Yeah, Jesus might have uh, 
become the Messiah, even if he was crucified. At that level, even that is already a bit ridiculous. But let's say we take we we give it the benefit of doubt that that could happen. To make Jesus the divine Lord is something altogether uh, different. So looking at all these points, we see that the resurrection actually fits nicely to explain all these puzzles. Why? The resurrection means that Jesus, whatever Jesus did and thought before he was crucified was true. He was raised from the dead. This also means that if Jesus' teaching and deeds correspond to him being the divine Lord, it means that he was the divine Lord. Then it also means that whatever happened at that time, even when uh, Rome was at its peak in strength, even when Israel is ruled by a pagan foreign power, it means that God really has taken grasp of Israel and put his person in charge and established his kingdom. The kingdom had come. It also means that now the Sabbath day of rest and worship has taken a less significance. Why? Because Jesus now has taken new role as a person who is the harbinger of new creation through Sunday resurrection. And that's why Sunday became the day of worship. Without the resurrection, all these are very difficult to explain. An honest historian would need to look at other possibilities of why Christianity developed their teachings this way. And note that this did not develop within two centuries, three centuries, but within a very short time. Already in the first two or three years, according to Robert Funk, the conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead had already taken root. So this is by the time Paul was converted about 33 common era. So on the assumption that Jesus died about 30 common era, the time for development was thus only two or three years at most. So it's not an evolution of doctrines where people develop doctrines uh, slowly over several years, but it's an explosion of teaching, a new explosion of understanding. And we believe that the resurrection is one such cataclysmic factor that creates such a huge change in understanding. Okay, so how does knowing all these help the Christian lay person? Normally, Christians take for granted that Jesus was resurrected, that Jesus was God, he's divine, and we should worship him. But sometimes that only happens within our interior self. Yeah, we take it, we keep it, but it's not something that we could easily share. Why? Because we believe it's a subjective faith. It's a faith that me, my own self, have taken hold of not something that I could really share. It's just an article of faith. But when you look at the historical circumstances, there's a real plausible explanation for the rise of Christianity that is the resurrection. The resurrection has taken a level of plausibility even among non-Christians, if we look at it this way. It means non-Christians can now look at the resurrection as some thoughts to ponder. Really, it could happen. Okay, thank you, Chandra. So we hope that after this critical examination of the theology and practices of the very early Christians, that uh, you will gain some insights. So say if you're a Christian, then maybe you want to have a second thought about the significance of the resurrection and not just take it at face value and just accept it passively. And for non-Christians, that it may give you something to consider about 
like whether or not to believe in Christ. So we thank you for listening and God bless. For more confessions, do check out our website and Facebook page.